Welcome to your number one source of information on women's pelvic health. On this podcast, you will hear from medical experts, pelvic health professionals, holistic healers, and patients themselves in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about regaining and maintaining your pelvic health and becoming your own best advocate for your pelvic floor, the most vital part of our bodies as women. All of the conversations are intimate, raw, and unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. I don't usually do this, but for this week's episode, I decided it was necessary that I record a little bit of an intro after the episode's already been recorded, um, just to give everyone listening a little bit of an idea, a preliminary idea as to what this episode is about, and to just make sure I really, this is something that I really want everyone to listen to. so this week's story is about it's the injuries with my mom. It's about my grandmother, my mom's mom, and I I introed the podcast when when we start out with the episode. So I'm not going to get into everything, but I just wanted to start off and say that I was incredibly close, close with my grandma. She passed away two years ago uh, when she was 82, and she would have been 82 when she was 80, and she had interstitial cystitis, pelvic floor dysfunction. Uh, vulvodynia, a lot of health issues, and a lot of them were pelvic pain related. However, she lived an amazing, beautiful, wonderful, and special life filled with a lot of family and friends and travels and amazing, amazing things. Um, She also lived in horrible chronic pain for certain periods of her life, not her entire life, but periods of her life. She was in a lot of chronic pain. And Although she had amazing times of her life, there were times that were incredibly hard. And this is what we talk about in the podcast. And just to let everyone know, this podcast episode is not just one that will resonate with someone who has pelvic pain, but it's something that will resonate with anyone who has any form of chronic pain because we really get into what life is like having pain and especially having a medical condition that is not widely understood by society and by doctors. Anyways, she ultimately ended up committing suicide two years ago, and what we talk about in the podcast is her entire life leading up to that, and I think that this is a story that is really powerful and impactful, and my grandma was my best friend. We spoke every single day on the phone when I started to develop uh, the pelvic pain that I had. She was alive, and I had. She came to. She said I had to see her gynecologist, who was a vulvodynia specialist. She came with me to the first appointment. Her and my mom came with me. We would talk on the phone every single day. I would see her every single week. She lived in New York. I lived in New York, and I mean, she was just the most beautiful soul in the entire world. And. I think I'm very similar to her, and I know I'm very similar to her in in many aspects, and I think about her every day, I miss her every day, and this is a really, a really special episode that my mom and I have wanted to do for a long time now, so I hope that you guys find this interesting, and I would love to hear your feedback, your thoughts, 
Um, you know, any questions that anyone has, please email them to me always. Uh, info at the women's pelvic health podcast.com. And yeah, enjoy. I'm here with my sweet mother. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> we are going to do this long overdue episode today about my grandmother, my mom's mom, who passed away a little over a year and a half ago. Today's her birthday, so she would have been 82. It's June 20th, 2019. Um, we're recording this today on her birthday, but um, I'll upload it next week. And we wanted to do it on the one-year anniversary of her death, right? Wasn't that when we went? Oh, on Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, but we didn't get around to it. So we thought that today would be the, the next best occasion. And she, the story of her life is amazing. And, and my mom's going to explain a lot about what, what her life was like. She had interstitial cystitis. She was diagnosed in her 40s, and she was one of the founders of the Interstitial Cystitis Association, and she did a tremendous amount of advocacy work and lived a complicated life with a lot of pain, but also a lot of amazing experiences and periods of tremendous happiness and health. And the story of how she lived is just really really interesting and she also was incredibly organized and has everything documented from letters with her doctors to like what does she have journals about how she felt and the medications that she took and the experiences she had and the people she met and it is unlike anything that you've ever seen so we found a lot of the stuff in her apartment, right? A lot of the, the letters and, and binders. She right. has it all organized. Well, she kept it all together. I mean, she also has, she wrote um, stories about every single child and grandchild. And she wanted to write a book. She wanted to write a book. So she wrote about everything and she kept it all incredibly organized. And one of the reasons she did that was because when she was in pain, um, or not feeling well, she found it really therapeutic to just kind of hunker down home and organize her life. So that's what she really did so well. But mm -hmm. it goes into a little bit of the piece of, you know, how she dealt with being um, in chronic pain. Yeah. And I was going to give a little bit more of an introduction about her and our relationship but I think I think it will really come out in this podcast the relationship that we had and that you had with her but she was like the most special person in the world right she was she literally yeah. was mm -hmm. and um and she loved you yeah. a lot she was like your biggest fan yeah my biggest fan <laughs> and although probably every grandchild would yeah. say the same um, uh -huh. she was my biggest fan because she made all 13 of her grandchildren yeah. feel really special mm -hmm. yeah she kind of lived obsessed her life with her grandkids with, for her for her grandkids 
Yeah. And her grandkids were obsessed with her. They were. <laughs> All of them. All of them. Mm-hmm. How many? They're 15? 13? Well, 11 biological okay. and two um, from her um, stepson. Mm-hmm. So, but they were hers as well. So 13 in all. Am I missing anything else that we should we should give as an introduction? Oh, I remember the one other thing we wanted to say was that even though we're going to talk a lot about the health issues, pelvic pain issues, interstitial cystitis, and the related conditions that she had, this story is not just applicable to someone who has pelvic pain, but any form of chronic pain in general, because it really illustrates what it's like living with pain. Absolutely. You know, and not just IC or pelvic pain, but pain in general. Well, thank you for um, having me. We've been talking. My mom's about really this nervous. She's been really she's been planning. Time. We're opposites. I don't plan anything. Uh-huh. She has like pages written out, printed out in front of her. Well, you know what? I am nervous because it's my mom and it's emotional. And we'll get into later in the podcast about you know how she passed away, um, because that's a whole story. In itself so yeah so when anything is emotional it's hard to talk about but I feel grandma's energy here today and um, she would have loved this loved it you know she once called me up I was like making dinner one night you guys were really little and she said I have a question and I'm like yeah mom making dinner what's your question she says what is going to be my legacy and when I'm not here anymore, what are you going to say about me? Mm-hmm. When did what? Yeah, I when had, did you guys like were five and oh. six and eight, and my house was like mayhem, and I was in the middle of making dinner, and you guys were screaming, and I was like, "Oh my god!" But that's something Grandma would do. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but she, but the the point is, she really, it was important to her to know that she was going to leave a major legacy. And she did. She did. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she would have been really proud of what you've accomplished with your podcast. And um, you probably don't remember this, mm-hmm. but you wrote your college essay on the power of the female voice, and that you come from a line of women who advocated on behalf of those who couldn't advocate for themselves. Um, you know, grandma. Did I real? I did. You did, and you talked about your great grandmother and that she protested against the Vietnam War when it wasn't so popular to do that, and and then grandma, who did so many unbelievable things. Um, she worked at the district attorney's office in the 1970s, helping victims of domestic violence navigate the court system, and later in her life, she volunteered in prisons at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility teaching women parenting skills. And, um, you know, most importantly, I think she, when she was diagnosed with IC and the organization had just really um, began by the founder, Vicki Ratner, Dr. Vicki Ratner, she became very close to Vicki and helped, you know, in the beginnings of the organization she lobbied for funds for research, um, testified before Congress, and you know, 
did all these other things to help um, the organization as much as she could. So she left a powerful legacy of the importance of education, awareness, and kindness, and you know, you're just carrying on the principles she embodied throughout her life. I think I said to you a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago at this point, I said to dad also, like, would I rather, which, which like life would I have chosen? Would I have chosen to not have had any of these issues and be at a job that I probably didn't care much about and was bored and didn't know what I was going to do with my life? Not that that's a bad thing, but would I have chosen that path or would I have chosen to have had the health issues that I've had, but to be doing this and to be on this path and to be helping all of these people and, and spreading awareness on these topics that aren't really talked about enough. And the more I've thought about it, I think that I 100% would have rather be doing this because I also listened to someone say the other day that you're on a you're on a path for a reason and the more that you resist the path that you're on, like the harder it is to, for your life to like, what's the right word? You can't resist what's happening to you. You have to like, you have to follow it and, and go with it. Right. But your, you know, your instinct was, I'm going to do something right. with this. I'm going to take my experience and I'm going to take my pain and I'm going to take the education that I have learned through my navigation of this of these medical issues and I'm going to put use my voice mm -hmm. in a way that I can reach as many people as possible mm -hmm. and what's kind of so crazy is that when in the night in the early 1980s I was in high school and grandma was just diagnosed with interstitial cystitis and it had just become an organization and she decided to start a helpline where people called our house and I remember after dinner she was on the phone sometimes for hours talking to people who were just learning about what mm -hmm. interstitial cystitis was and what should they do and what kind of treatments were available and what kind of doctors should they seek and and so her instinct was to do the same right which is so interesting yeah but listen she was she reached maybe dozens mm -hmm. uh, or maybe even a, a hundreds possibly of women by the phone and just that's where social media is just incredible because yeah. you can reach so many people and uh so many we people. now know that pelvic floor dysfunction and IC and all the other conditions that people experience is so prevalent and not talked about enough. So grandma was diagnosed at how old with interstitial cystitis? Grandma was about 40. Uh, she had had a hysterectomy when she was about 40 and about a year later she developed pain and bladder Why pain. Why did she have a hysterectomy? She had um, fibroid tumors. Okay. I believe, and she had a hysterectomy. She but prior to this, do you know if she had any pain or any pelvic issues or? I, I no, she. I believe, and you know, this is all my memory. But and how um, old were you at the time when she was diagnosed? Yeah, I was about eighteen, mm -hmm. seventeen, eighteen, and um, no, she had a lot of UTIs mm -hmm. and 
during probably her on and off her 20s and her 30s. Mm -hmm. I think it got worse in her 30s. So I'm sure she had some type of predisposition, but she didn't have anything to speak of until a year a year after this hysterectomy and she says she believes that their doctors told her later on that she developed scar tissue mm-hmm. from the surgery I don't really know um, if that's absolutely certain but that's what she did say um, so she just started to get frequent UTIs or what felt like UTIs she had a lot of frequency and pain and she went, you know, doctor to doctor to doctor, many of whom told her it was all in her head. And uh, Did she, she talk about that a lot, that doctors told her it was in her head? She did. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And more, that happened still now, but it happened even more so back then. Right. And most, no, I would say most doctors in the 80s, they didn't know what IC was. It was just um, beginning to become... A condition mm-hmm. that doctors even were aware of so it took years and I was in it was when I was in high school and then she was diagnosed um, in about 1984 I want to say um, yeah and then she learned about Vicki Ratner who had started the ICA and called her up how did she how did she I think it was just a very small community at that point you know, and um, she, she, well, once she got diagnosed with ice with IC, she you know was an activist, and she delved into it, and she learned that there was this associate this uh, organization that had begun with Dr. Ratner, and she called her, and they be, they became very very close. Mm-hmm. And do you remember like what doctor diagnosed her, and can you talk more about what it looked like when she was diagnosed, like? with her and between the family and... I don't remember the particular doctor who did diagnose her. Um, I know that she was sort of happy to have a diagnosis because it's terrible to walk around not knowing what's wrong with you. Um, So there was validation that she actually had, um, you know, I think the lining of her bladder while she had the ulcers, which Mm. they say, I guess, only 10% of IC patients actually have, are they called ulcers on the wall? The Hunter's lesions. The Hunter's lesions. I believe she had that. So, um, you know, I guess they started her, they were able to start her on some type of treatments. And uh, I remember when I was a senior in high school, she couldn't cook dinner because standing on her legs would give her so much pain Mm. and I was never interested in cooking so she would sit on the stool on the counter in the kitchen and I would cook dinner and she would tell me what to do and that's basically how I learned uh, to cook and then she was really worried she wasn't going to be able to move me into my dorm when I went to college and because she just wasn't feeling well and I remember that being such a worry for her and when she was able to move me in and we were actually moving all the furniture in the dorm and you know the two of us were like 
you know, bionic women that weekend doing what we needed to do to make everything look great. Um, she felt so well, and that was a huge victory for her. That were you was, worried that she wasn't going to be able to come? Like, did no. those things upset you, or you were... No. Yeah. I don't remember that as being, mm-hmm. you know, I think I was young, and it had just all started, and it wasn't some, like traumatic event when she was diagnosed it was more as the years went on and she got older there were um there were really upsetting difficult times that we all you know experienced with her but not in those early years because i think we were hopeful she was going to get treated and cured Mm -hmm. can you talk about what type of treatments she used throughout the majority of her life and what she did to navigate IC and the pain that she had. Yeah, I you know, I I don't And I know she did mm-hmm. so many things, but if yeah. you can talk about some of the most notable ones. Yes. So, um I actually had a list of all the medications she was on. Of course on. you have a list. Uh, yeah, I know, <laughs> but I don't see that piece of paper here. So anyway, um I know that in 19, she took medications in the 80s. I'm not quite sure. I believe possibly Elevil was something that she took in those years and that helped her. I know that in 1990, she started Elmeron. And she writes in her journals that from 1990 to Are almost, you reading from it now? No. Oh. To, to almost 2000, she had 10 years of really good health. So that was a really good time for her while she was on Elmeron yeah Uh yeah and then in 19 um in the late 1990s she it just started it just wasn't working for her anymore and she started to get into really really bad chronic pain and in 2000 so how old are you at this point 1990 in well, in 1990, um, I was what was I, 24, mm-hmm. and um, by 2000, I was in my early 30s. I had three babies basically, and she, it was a terrible time, and she said she was in so much pain that she wanted to go to Memphis, Tennessee, to a pain clinic in a hospital that was run by Dr. Daniel Brookoff. She had heard about him because he treated um, anybody with pain, but in particular, a lot of IC patients. So we all flew to Memphis, Tennessee with her. Who's we all? Me and- Your two sisters. sisters And Ron, Mm -hmm. her husband, my stepdad. And we went to Memphis and we, um, she checked in to the hospital there and um, he gave her an unbelievable amount of narcotics to take the pain away. His belief was get the pain to go away and whatever mm. it takes to do that, we'll do that. And What do you think of that? Well, it's complicated. Yeah. So... Um, after that experience, this Dr. Brookoff became a very, very close friend of grandma's and he treated her by phone calls and emails 
for the next... Um, he was based in, in Tennessee? He was based in Tennessee. Later, he moved to Denver, but they became very, very close. And well, this is her. why she has all of this documented, is because the right. work they were doing was through emails. Yes, exactly. Okay. And she printed out all the emails, mm-hmm. and she put it in a book. So she basically has an entire notebook on Dr. Why Buckwell. did she print everything out, you think? It's uh, a good question. Right? It's a really good like, question. Maybe she knew that this was going, this. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I was yesterday. Well, isn't it weird that you're now telling the story and she happens yeah. to have had everything printed out? Like she knew this was going to happen. I, 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 yeah, I don't know why she thought anybody would be interested in her correspondence with Dr. Brookoff, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually her medical, it's like medical journals. Well, maybe she did it for the book she was planning on writing. I don't know. Um, but I was just, you know, thinking about Dr. Brookoff because a month before Grandma died, she went to the emergency room in pain at Lenox Hill Hospital, and she was talking about him, and she loved him, and he ended up um, committing suicide. But I will tell you that after 2000, when Grandma left Memphis, Tennessee, prior to that, I don't think she was really taking any type of narcotic medication so how old was she at this time like 65 Um, no maybe she was um 63 Mm -hmm. and she led a very clean life like she never smoked she really didn't drink very light drinker she didn't take antidepressants she didn't take um sleeping pills prior to this well she took elevil uh well she had started on some treatment for ic but what i'm saying is she never gravitated right she didn't have a predisposition to this it to was it. just given to her because she was in pain yeah and he did prescribe after that a lot of a lot of pain meds um so should we go through some of the emails are there any that are particularly well, interesting I, I actually want to read um i was reading dr Brookos obituary mm. yesterday and it's it's interesting and i'm just going to quote from the obituary because it goes into sort of the psyche of somebody who's in chronic pain as well as the a doctor who's treating them who believes in their pain and so this is this is what it said in his obituary he served thousands of patients everyone knows what an obituary is right obituary yes okay. i think it's, okay. yeah. um, he served thousands of patients desperate for pain relief his knowledge of biochemical and pharmacological interactions enabled him to provide individualized unique and innovative treatments for patients who had previously been unresponsive to traditional medication regimens. These patients were frequently demoralized by the lack of help available to them, their treatment in the medical system, and hopeless about the prospects of pain relief. Dr. Brookoff was not only a beacon of medical hope, but he also patiently listened to every individual's life story getting to know them intimately and making himself available to them whenever they needed him. His compassionate relationships and his fellow travelers were truly healing. He recognized the pain of humanity and sought to bring comfort to all who came to see him. Patients would learn of him from others suffering with similar illnesses and travel to see him from all over the country. So, I don't know, this explains to me a lot about, you know, what grandma was going through and, and, and you could say, oh, you know, she went out there and he just gave her a, 
bag full of terrible medications to go home with, but that's that's what he did because he was the most compassionate doctor and felt that that's, that was his way of helping them. And if grandma was sitting here today, she would say, and I actually have a quote somewhere that said, he's my lifeline. Mm -hmm. He did other things that's just interesting. He gave her a lot of antibiotics. And I think we once discussed this, which we were just so like amazed that she had this trip to Vietnam and she always got really nervous about traveling abroad. And she was a huge traveler. And she was a huge traveler. And we have this in writing where he said, I'm going to send you with 10 days of Cipro to take in Vietnam so you, you don't get a bladder infection. So he gave it to her as like a prophylactic, um, you know, means to not come down with any type of UTI while she was away. But I, I think that he gave her a lot of antibiotics and it really wreaked havoc on her gut. And probably contributed to a lot of health issues that she had later on. Definitely. He also gave her a muscle stimulator to put on her lower abdomen, programmed to massage and relax the pelvic floor muscles. Yeah. So like you know, a sticker type of thing? I don't know. A stimulator, some type of stimulator on the abdomen. But you know, we've talked about how pelvic floor physical therapy, which mm. you talk about so much in your podcast was just not a thing back then, at least in her world. Right. And um, I remember once grandma saying, oh, I went to PT therapy. A doctor told me I should go. I went, oh, it was a waste of my time. And that was it. I think pelvic floor physical, physical therapy would have helped her tremendously. Yeah. There was not in the 80s or the 90s or even maybe 10 years ago, there was just a disconnect between I see bladder pain, vulvodynia, which she also had, and how that connected to the pelvic floor. Right. And now it's so clear mm -hmm. that the pelvic floor muscles mm -hmm. are the muscles that control all of these problems mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So after she left Memphis, you know, she was better, but she was very up and down. And in 2003, which was just a few years after she was um, hospitalized in Memphis, she journaled the medications she was on. And so she was on Paxil, Elmeron, Valium suppositories, Clonopin, Elevil, Neurontin, and Ditropan. And this was daily? You I think? believe so. Yeah. So she took a clonopin every day for like 20 years? I don't know. She took either clonopin or Valium. I know that her way of treating her pain was to knock herself out mm -hmm. with Valium and other types of medications like that. Mm -hmm. And that kind of came from her experience with Dr. Brokoff. Like, knock yourself out because... It's going to calm down the bladder. And she said that's that worked for her. Mm. I mean, she didn't, when she had a flare up, this wasn't all the time, but when she had a flare up. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. And so what happened after she left this clinic? Well, you know, I think that she had ups and she had downs. And I think 2000 to 2007, they were kind of rough years. Mm. Uh, In 2007, she had an eight-hour surgery. Well, wait, before we get into that, do you want to just, for like two minutes, talk about when she was going, when she did have periods of really good health, what she did? Like these mm-hmm. crazy trips that she went on. Yeah, she, well, she, she like talk about travel. the good things for a minute. Okay, <laughs> so she loved to travel. Uh, loved to yeah, travel. Really, she traveled as a child with her parents all over the world, every inch of the world, crazy places. And um, her father was an avid traveler, and so that was something that she loved. She loved to go on family vacations. We took many, many trips, all 19 of us, you know, her three kids, stepkids, son-in-laws, 13 grandchildren. We went, you know, skiing. She was a great skier, Um, Caribbean. She scuba dived, she snorkeled, ski trips. Did she feel good when she was away usually? She often did. Did? Yeah, she had a lot of anxiety about going away. I think on all of her abroad travels, things, places like Africa and Europe and um, a lot of places that she went to that I remember hearing about, she needed a doctor. She would get a bladder infection. They would send a doctor to the hotel room. This happens in foreign countries. I don't know. You can get doctors to hotel rooms. But now it's like, do you think it was a bladder infection or do you think it was just an IC flare-up? I don't know. Mm -hmm. She did get a lot of bladder infections Mm -hmm. where she tested positive. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So she was an unbelievable, like, full of life type of person and loved to travel and loved to go to the theater and opera and she lived a really full life. She had an apartment in New York City and did everything in Manhattan and um, she loved to plan huge, amazing weddings and birthday parties and you know, then when she had all the grandkids, that was really her life. And you wanna talk about how perfect she looked every day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, she was beautiful. And um, I was thinking about yesterday, you know, we always would laugh at this story because she had a really bad day. You know, she was in her, she's probably in her 60s. And she called me up and she's like, I am in horrible pain. I got into the, my urologist Saturday morning. I got in at 10 o'clock. Can you pick me up and take me to the doctor? And I had a horrible night, I was up all night, and um, I just need to go see the doctor, something's wrong. So I went to her house, Saturday, nine o'clock in the morning, I was in my sweatpants, I had, you know, I looked like a wreck, and I walk in and she's in her skirt, her high heels, her pantyhose, her silk blouse, her pearls, her earrings, her hair done, and her makeup on, after being up all night in horrible pain because for her to go to a doctor she i mean she did go to a a lot of doctors but for her to go to a doctor on a saturday morning meant she was really really sick 
And I'm like, Mom, you look so beautiful. She's like, well, what am I going to do? Go look like a rat? <laughs> you know? <gasps> and I would joke about it with her all the time. I said, Mom, you know, after that, Mom, doctors aren't going to believe you're even sick. You know, when someone doesn't feel well, they crawl into a doctor's office in their sweatpants. And she... You probably looked more sick than oh, she did. Completely. And she always looked beautiful mm-hmm. and perfect. I know. And I, I don't know like, how. Even when I feel like probably a tenth of what she feels yeah. on one of my bad days, I'm like, I look like I'm dying. Well, no, you don't. But <laughs> um, I, it was all part of her psyche yeah. that this isn't going to beat me down and I might feel like hell, but I'm going to look great. Mm. And it made her feel better. I know. It just did. Mm-hmm. Um, she was super vain, but she took a lot of pride in really always looking her best, even if she felt terrible. It made her feel better. So interesting. Yeah. And, I mean, this is kind of fast-forwarding to, like, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. But I think that another – something that's – funny isn't the right word but you know like the two days before she died and she went to her psychiatrist and it was the first time that she ever went to him in workout clothes right because she wanted to she wanted him to see her Mm -hmm. like not (laughs) like not all dressed up not all dressed up yeah didn't she tell you this story yeah but the other thing is that she joined the equinox that day or the day before Mm -hmm. and she joined the equinox and bought yoga outfit because of course she had to buy you know the previous yoga outfit and then she decided to go into george's office her therapist dressed in her yoga clothes because he would just be he would get a kick out of that yeah and then she died four days later Mm -hmm. so that was kind of kind of crazy so okay go back to the the surgery now in her so 70s. grandma was diagnosed uh which might have been part of her problem when she went out to memphis wait Tennessee. sorry one more mm-hmm. thing i want to interrupt you even when she died mm-hmm. i've i think a lot of people had said to you like what the hell like i didn't even know she was sick exactly like people were so confused like mm-hmm. no one knew besides mm-hmm. for her family mm-hmm. what she had been through in her life because she literally looked stunning every day Right. I mean, her family knew, and you know, because she talked about it endlessly, which we'll get to. And her friends and she was knew. similar to me in the sense that she was so open. Yeah, she she liked talked to talk about, about everything. It. She loved talking about mm-hmm. about her pain and her problems, she did. and talked to her friends about it. So th- those close to her knew, but other people, you know, people who were just friendly with her, were sort of really shocked. Because she did present herself as someone who was great. Great. Yeah. In great health. Yeah. Okay, back to the surgery. So her OBGYN uh, in New York City diagnosed her in about 2006 with a prolapsed bladder. Mm -hmm. I believe as well a prolapsed rectum. And so from about... 2004 to 2007, she was in a really, really bad way because she um, had retention mm. and was had to self-catheter mm-hmm. in her house for almost three years. She 
had major surgery in 2007. It was eight hour surgery. I believe there was a urologist or a gyno urologist and another doctor. I forget the name of the doctor who lifted the rectum. Like a colorectal surgeon? Colorectal surgery surgeon with the other surgeon and lifted, lifted the bladder the vagina, everything, and she had amazing results. Mm -hmm. She felt really well after that. She didn't have to catheter anymore. Um, That surgery was really life-changing. And wait, how old was she again at this time? She was about 70. Uh Uh-huh. And she had... Was that a hard surgery to recover from? Well, you know what? She recovered from everything really well. She had a double knee replacement a few years after that, I think. She was like bionic woman, you yeah. know. She was really strong and really healthy in so many ways. Mm-hmm. So she recovered from surgery really well. And I think what the next ten years looked like, a lot of other things happened. She was in her seventies, and she, you know, she had had this double knee replacement surgery. But you know, six months later, she was walking in her neighborhood with us on Mother's Day, three miles, three mile loop at a pretty fast pace. Um, she swam. You know, she still played tennis, but she began to develop some other health conditions. She had uh, macular degeneration and was rapidly through her 70s losing her vision. And she also had developed stenosis of her neck and she had taken a couple of bad falls. One was a fall that she had I think she had taken Ambien at night, woke up in the middle of the night, went to get a book, and went down the basement stairs by accident. She was going to Morocco with Haley and Marissa the next day. Yeah, then two days later. And so she fell down a flight of stairs. She went to the hospital the next day. She had broken ribs. And the following day, she got on an airplane. You know, this is the famous story in the house with two of her, two of your cousins, and Poppy, and went through Morocco. And if anybody's been to Morocco, there's like many long journeys and car rides for like four or five, six hours. Bumpy. She did that with broken ribs. Um, but I think what that so she was, nothing stopped her ever, mm. ever. And yeah, she, you know, just wanted to live her life fully and really did not want any of this pain and medical conditions to get in her way. So she went to Morocco. But um, I think during that fall, she injured her neck. Mm -hmm. And so the last five years of her of her life she had you know very bad macular degeneration where she basically she couldn't participate in her book group anymore because she couldn't read she couldn't really see she couldn't see movies at all so that stopped and movies was one of her greatest passions and you know the last couple of years of her life she couldn't really she was able to go to the theater if she sat in the second row, but the last year of her life, she couldn't even see the theater anymore. I took her to the ballet about six months before she died. She said the stage was black. Mm. It was so sad. And just even like walking on the streets of New York City was difficult for her. So, you know, she had 
pain from the IC and the vulvodynia and the vision issues and the neck issues. She had on and off Lyme disease that for whatever reason came and went throughout the last 15 years of her life. Um, yeah, you know, we always thought, is there something systemic going on with her? I'd have conversations with her. You know, mm-hmm. why did I get, why did I have two knee replacements, she would say. Why am I having such vision issues? And was it, you know, I always would wonder, is it because of all the medications she was on? Was something else going on with her? So her life became really, really hard and compromised. And then she lost her husband, you know, when Poppy died, um, three and a half years before she died. So then she was widowed and being alone for her was the worst thing that could have happened to her. But she went out on a blind date six months after Poppy died and she fell madly in love. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other story, (laughs) as we all know. Mm -hmm. Um, We can get, we can talk about that a little bit, but there's a few other questions I want to ask. One of them is she was in therapy throughout her life, right? Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, she was great about going to therapy. I mean, first, she got divorced in um, 1970. So, you know, it wasn't a, a lot of people did not get divorced back then. So she went into therapy because she just was a believer that in order for in order for me to raise three healthy kids and move on with my life, I need to be in therapy to manage it all. So she started to go to therapy for that. And she, as you know, was amazing and just navigating a divorce and raising healthy kids and doing all that with such like grace and then when she was diagnosed with IC she went back into therapy and uh, she had a therapist she loved in mm-hmm. Scarsdale Dr. Schaffer and she saw her for many 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 years mm-hmm. and you know, she was a talker and she wanted to always be able to have somebody to talk about her medical issues with. Yeah. And just, you know, how to navigate her life with that. Um, it turned out that Dr. Schaffer, who she really loved, committed suicide. So, you know, she had these two doctors in her life who That's she really ironic. loved. Who both committed suicide. And, uh, she talked about that a lot. Um, but I think her biggest issue was navigating her health issues and her disappointment in not being able to Yeah, that's her where life. I was going next. Yeah. It just she constantly struggled with this these medical conditions, the way I feel, these doctor appointments, they're really getting in the way of my life, my lust from life, my my incredible will to go out and have fun and do things and travel and go to theater and be with friends and be with my family and it's just getting in my way and this theme ran throughout her entire life yeah managing this disappointment canceling appointments canceling 
special events with people. And most of the time she just got dressed, looked beautiful, pushed through, but sometimes she just couldn't and it was crushing to her when she couldn't do something she wanted to do. I think that's also, I know that's very common for anyone with chronic illness, mm -hmm. is the struggle of wanting to do things and then not feeling good enough mm -hmm. to do it and then feeling guilty about not being able to do it. And how do you manage that? Right. How did she manage that? It was hard. Mm -hmm. You know, dad would say, Mona had not the best personality for a chronic health condition. No. <laughs> Because, I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but it's true. Mm -hmm. It's like some people are homebodies. Some people are okay with just getting into bed, watching a movie, kicking up their feet, and just saying, you know, just kind of surrendering right. to the fact that I don't feel well today. I'm going to take care of myself. She wanted no part of that. None. No. Her, George was her psychiatrist, right? George was her psychologist. He was not an MD. Oh. She had an, a psychiatrist, another, another psychiatrist who was a pharmacologist who prescribed her medication. George was, George was her psychologist the last maybe 10 years of her life. Mm -hmm. And what was her relationship with, like with him? I think it was, it was great. She loved George. Yeah. You know, when grandma... Wasn't he around her age too? Um, no, George is younger. Oh. Well, after Grandma passed away, I George, I think, called me. He was so shocked how she died, and um, I went in to see him. We'll get there. I went oh, yeah. in to see George, but George loved her. I mean, she was like the most lovable human being. Most. You know, everybody who met her loved her mm. because she just was in, so engaged with life, so warm, so engaged and charming and interested in people and great listener so you know everybody who met her mm -hmm. I mean I remember driving home one day and her gardener who mowed her lawn and did her flowers that she loved in her garden started mowing our lawn mm -hmm. and he was up doing something on a window in my house replacing something for me and I didn't realize that it was like grandma had passed away a few months earlier and I didn't realize that Domingo didn't know. And I just kind of blurted it out, not in the best way. And oh my God, he was like devastated. But that was a reaction I got from so many people. You never told me that story. Yeah, yeah. She had a driver because she couldn't, you know, she couldn't drive the last five years of her life. And she had a driver that I met in a, in a, I was helping, I was actually helping his daughter apply to college. It was a coincidence. And, you know, he was crying when he talked about grandma because she just made everybody in the world, no matter what part of, you know, her life they fell into, whether they were, you know, painting her house. Yeah, her painter, another person cried over her death. Mm. I mean, these, she just, brought people into her life. Mm -hmm. Everybody loved her. Yeah. It was really special. Yeah. Um, I don't know how we got onto that. I don't, well, it's relevant either way. So <laughs> is there anything in these papers that you want to read or point out? There's like stacks of papers and letters in front of my mom. 
Or we could come back to that no, later. No, the only thing, you know, on... Um, oh, but I, 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 I have, feel like there might be something interesting somewhere well, in there. So I have a letter from a senator. Um, you know, we we kind of glossed over the fact that she got involved with the ICA from the beginning. But, you know, this was a big part of her life. And it's a part of her legacy as well. Because she was an ICA board member for 10 years. And she started that, you know, telephone support line from her house. She was on CNN and we have the video footage I think it's from the 1980s mm -hmm. where she was interviewed CNN it was like national on what it's like to be a patient living with interstitial cystitis um, and in the 1980s and 1990s she lobbied in Washington she testified many times before the Senate and House subcommittees advocating for increased research funding and I have a letter here written to grandma in 1993 from Senator Tom Harkin thanking her for her testimony and informing her that as a result of her testimony the federal commitment for IC research increased to 8,600,000 and he says in a letter quote you should be very proud of what you did to make that increase a reality Testimony like yours helped immeasurably to communicate to my fellow committee members the very real problems with which I see patients must cope. With our mutual efforts, perhaps someday soon, we can find a cure. Mm -hmm. She was really proud of all of that. Yeah. She was proud of that part of her life. And um, I believe as well, she was either on the board or very involved with the Bulbadinia Association too. Mm -hmm. um, Did she ever talk about, I mean, we've been talking a lot about her IC, but not as much about the Bulbadinia. Well, actually, she talked a lot about the Bulbadinia. Yeah. And I think that I think that the pain that she experienced from the vulvodynia the last six months of her life is really what caused her to be done. Mm -hmm. The pain was like at a 10 mm -hmm. and she couldn't get it resolved. Do you have any idea what you think might have caused it to get so bad in the last few years? I do. I oh, mean, Steve. Well, you know, so Poppy passed away when she was about 77, and then she met Steve six months later. And for the next three years, she was in a relationship with Steve, and um, they had ups and downs and highs and lows and about three breakups, traumatic breakups. But um, I know that, you know, it might be hard for all these grandkids to hear, but I know she had a really active sex life. Mm -hmm. And I know because she told me and because she confided in Diana mm -hmm. who told us that she had sex was just causing her vulva pain mm -hmm. and I think it made the condition worse mm -hmm. yeah I think that the past the last few years of her life you know so this is this is how I say it while she was married to to Poppy which was 40 years of her life he kept her really balanced and grounded. She was very calm. Mm -hmm. And I think sweet, that for right, easygoing. And, right. And he made sure that every day she came home at four o'clock 
and took a rest. That's like the cutest thing yeah. I've ever heard in my life. And in fact, she would, you know, we lived 20 minutes away. When you guys were growing up, she'd come over like once a week to spend the afternoon with me or us or whatever. And inevitably we were talking and talking and talking and she would leave late and she'd always be like, oh my God, I gotta go home. Ron's gonna have a conniption. I gotta get home. I have to be home by four o'clock. <laughs> and every single week he would call up at four o'clock and he would say, where's your mom? And I said, Ron, she's on her way home, which is always the truth, but she was always like 20 minutes late. And he was looking for her because he knew that her way of, of self-care was to get into bed every day at four o'clock and just take a rest. That's like the cutest yeah. thing I've ever heard in my yeah. life. Yeah. So, and he was very calm and he just kept her really grounded mm -hmm. and it helped her health mm -hmm. and after Ron passed away and she became involved with this incredibly tumultuous relationship which I mean she she had her moments of like she didn't see anybody because all she wanted to do was like go out with Steve and she was at her happiest mm. and then but it was tumultuous mm -hmm. and I think that you know, it caused her a lot of stress. Which probably made the pain much worse. But mm -hmm. was she not, did she not have a sex life with Poppy? No, she did. But you know what? I mean, it probably, you know, they were married for 40 yeah. years. And I think the last few years of Poppy's life, he wasn't feeling so mm -hmm. well. And so, you know, I think that when she turned 77, 78 and met Steve, she was acting like a teenager again. Yeah. And that just wasn't right for her. Good for her. Yeah. And there was also a lot of stress and anxiety with her relationship yeah. with Steve, which, yes. and the I mean, anxiety, that has a lot to do with pain. Yeah. The anxiety and the stress, I believe, was. Her really body was like, no, her. this person's not good. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, like they were throwing like tequila bottles across the hall, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah. He literally they had a breakup and then he came back for their liquor and she put the tequila bottle in her hand and she raised it, I think. She was gonna throw it. I mean she did it, but she yeah. described that story where it was so heated. Mm. But I remember walking around being like, Oh my god, my mom is like in this unbelievable relationship. Not to say he was an unbelievable man. He wasn't. He caused her a lot of problems. But that was her decision. I don't think she would have done it any other way. No. Okay, but now I want to talk about um, what happened when she started to really not feel well when she was with Steve. I think the last two years of her life, she just became completely, I mean, I know she came, be, I think she became completely addicted to narcotics and um, you know I, I I explain the story of her going to Memphis in 2000 and I think that just sort of opened the floodgates for her to gradually over the next 17 years um, use more and more opioids to relieve her pain although I see she wrote in a letter to Dr. Brookoff saying, why don't opioids take my pain away? I don't understand. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. But she still used them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, talking, you know, her, yeah. her, I, she had a, a very good friend who called me up a year before she died and said, Jane, I saw your mom. 
at a funeral and she looked really out of it. I'm concerned. So, you know, we all saw that. And the summer before she died, we wanted to check her into some type of um, treatment program because we thought, oh, maybe if we could get her to just go off everything, all the medications she was on, we could, she could reset her system, start all over again. And um, we tried and she wouldn't have it. She wouldn't go. I mean, like, do you wish you like forced her to go or that wasn't no. even a possibility? No. Yeah. We were close to, we were close to forcing her to go. Mm-hmm. But she said to us, you're not, she said to me, you're not getting me into yeah. a facility in New Canaan. And she's like, you're not getting me there. I'm not going. Mm-hmm. And, um, It wasn't happening. No. So, you know, if she was 10 years younger, I think that's the direction it would have taken. Yeah. For sure. So fast forward three years, she ended up, she was in enormous pain. She was in and out of the hospital the last six months of her life. She had clitoral pain. That was really, that was her main, I think one of her main serious problems. Mm -hmm. And... And neck pain. And neck very pain. Very bad. And couldn't see. Right. And I think she was losing control. Like, her pelvic floor was really, really in trouble. Mm-hmm. Her, her, she was having bowel movements and, like, she couldn't control them. Yeah. And she just, that, the whole pelvic floor muscle, I think, just was done. She went to the emergency room um, a couple of times in the summer of 2017, mm-hmm. in July, and then again Labor Day weekend. And two years ago, the, the, the June before this, the summer of the two um, times she went to the emergency room, it was her 80th birthday and she wasn't feeling well on her birthday. She had broken up with Steve. And um, I think that she just really started to spiral down. So she had a trip planned to go to Boston. Well, she also was prescribed medical marijuana. Yes, Which was not that. a good thing for her. She did that this summer. Because she couldn't see, and she didn't know how much she was taking, mm-hmm. and she was getting really high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was just mm-hmm. not good. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she was grabbing at anything, because she was yeah. just suffering so much. Mm-hmm. So, um, the week before she died, she was supposed to go to Boston to visit her granddaughter the weekend that she passed away, and she had a really... You know, the Tuesday before she died, she went to the Equinox Fitness Club to, and she joined. You know, she bought, as we said, this yoga outfit. She went to her therapist, who, who after she died, said she was great, in good spirits. And then that Wednesday night, she had friends over for dinner. I think she got really emotional from that dinner because she had two friends and their husbands. And I think she felt like they were living their lives and they were... She was alone. Mm-hmm. She felt badly about the fact that she was alone and her her two closest female friends had their husbands and they were engaged in life and going to book group and playing golf and doing everything, going to movies, and she didn't have any of those things left. Um, and then she just woke up 48 hours before she died in terrible pain and she was supposed to go to Boston that weekend and she had to cancel the trip and that was just a terrible thing for her to have to 
one more time cancel something because she didn't feel up to it. And I think she just started taking medication to get out of the pain and she ran to her urologist's office and they injected something in her urethra. Like lidocaine. Lidocaine or something. And it made it worse. And two days later, she overdosed. Mm -hmm. She had had enough. Mm -hmm. So So, mm -hmm. that's what happened. So what were, what medications was she taking? Do you you know? yeah, I mean, she was taking, well, she said something to the effect about um, two days before she died, she said, I'm in terrible pain, I'm just going to, I'm going to, like, I can't remember the exact phrase, I'm going to take this into my own hands kind of yeah. thing. She alluded to something, and she called, she was calling her gynecologist for Valium suppositories and the and at the time I was seeing the same gynecologist because I started developing all of these pelvic exactly. pain issues. Exactly, and I think you sent her over the Valium suppositories because mm-hmm. her gynecologist wasn't returning her phone call, her desperate phone calls mm-hmm. that she was putting into her office, and then her pharmacologist. Uh, I Uber her. messengered her the Valium suppositories, right. yeah. and I don't think they worked. Nothing really. No, worked. that wasn't going to so do anything. I think that she just you know basically took like a bottle of Clonopin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, she left, I think she was not herself at that point and left. She was so prolific and such a beautiful writer and always wrote long letters. And she just wrote a very short note that mm-hmm. she loved her family, but she couldn't take any more pain. She was mm-hmm. suffering too much. And um, yeah, so. Um, so do you want to talk about, like, do you want to go back to that day and talk about exactly what happened or no? Uh, no, it's, it's, so that day I woke up in the morning. I had spoken to her the day before and she sounded pretty bad. And then that morning I had an early appointment with a student I was coaching and helping him with his college applications. And I met him early, and um, when I came back, I called her. It was about 10, 30, 11 in the morning, and she didn't pick up. And I knew she was home because she had canceled her trip to Boston. And she, like, everyone in the family talks to her five times a day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and you normally, talk to her every day. I, I talk to her every morning. morning. Like, when I get up at 8 every morning, hi, Mom, how you feeling, the whole thing. But I had had an appointment with a student that morning and was rushing out so I called her after and she didn't pick up and then I called her an hour later and she didn't pick up and I knew something was wrong Mm -hmm. I just knew it yeah and then at one o'clock she still didn't pick up and I just knew Mm -hmm. I knew what happened yeah and so I called my sisters and um we had trouble getting the phone number to the building and so Aunt Amy finally got the number and she called the doorman and he went up to grandma's apartment and he found her and then Aunt Amy called me and said mom's gone she mm-hmm. took her life mm-hmm. and I just um 
I just remember like I felt it in my gut and I felt like the last part of the umbilical cord was just cut. Mm -hmm. It was like so in my gut. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God. And that was that. And then we just... Because you knew how much pain she was in. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, you go through these things in life and you you don't really know how you get through them, but you just kind of muster through. And within an hour, my sisters and husbands were here and we drove into the city. And, you know, all I can say is, like, thank God for my sisters. And um, even not just for that day, but I think our whole adult life um, dealing with grandma's medical conditions mm -hmm. when we had really we had you know some really critical times with her when she was hospitalized or when she was in really bad pain and you know you would talk to her every day and it was sometimes so draining and so upsetting and you'd get off the phone and I'd call up one of my sisters and it would be like just they just got it yeah they understood yeah it's not you couldn't have explained it to someone no, else nobody you know except dad but you know it's like it's just different and so I was always really grateful for having my sisters to go through these what it was 30 years mm -hmm. of, of you know managing what it's like to have a mom who's got so many medical conditions and even just the little things like or the bigger things but when she was in a hospital we all worked together we all you know divided and conquered mm -hmm. just always so um yeah so we just got through day by day by day and you know it's now 20 months later and it's still um you don't quite believe it. I yeah. don't think you completely process it. But I'll say that the one, I wasn't angry at her or mad at her or any of that. I was relieved in some sense. I was sad. Um, I thought she made the right choice mm -hmm. for her. And I feel, I can't speak on behalf of everybody in the family, but I think that the family reaction with me and my sisters and our husbands and all the grandkids was like, Grandma did an unbelievably empowering thing. Mm -hmm. Like, she took control of her life. She wasn't having this anymore. Yeah. She wasn't depressed. Well, she was depressed from pain, but you know, she up until the end wanted to live her life. Yeah. And a lot of people don't really understand. Well, she did what she did because she couldn't live her life. That's right. And and she couldn't not only live her life because she was in pain, she couldn't live her life because she couldn't see. It's like every single thing was every joy she had was taken away from her. The only joy she had left was seeing her family. And she couldn't even see them. And she couldn't see them, but she could be with them. And but at the end, the pain got so bad that that 
that couldn't carry her through anymore, mm -hmm. you know? And so I just looked at it as, you know what? And I would meet people who would hear about what she would do. And some people were so like taken back or horrified. And then other people were like, good for your mom. Yeah. And I agree. Good for her, you know? She, she did this on her own terms. And she was suffering too much. You know, life is amazing, but when you're suffering every day and you're going to doctors, doctor's offices every day and you're walking around, you know, medical marijuana and, 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 and Valium all day long, it's not so wonderful anymore. Mm -mm. And she lived a really full life. She mm -hmm. wasn't a 60-year-old woman. She was an 80-year-old woman. And I think she didn't feel like she had that much to live for anymore. I was thinking about this and I believe that there were probably, there had to have been moments of her life 20 years before that, 10 years before that, where the pain was so bad, where she would think in her brain like, I can't live like this, you know? But then, but she did, because she had so much to live for. You know, you get to 80 with all these other health issues and she just yeah. ran out of steam. Understandably so. So I think what she did was admirable. And, you know, I'm listening to this podcast. On, I love this podcast. I know, I love this podcast, um, Life After Suicide. And it's so fascinating and it's so interesting. And it's such an epidemic in our country. And, um, and uh, a psychiatrist was interviewed and was explaining that people who commit suicide often have like a distorted reality of their of their future because of the depression, I guess. And, you know, I don't believe in grandma's case, she had any kind of distorted reality. Mm -hmm. I think her reality was really right on. Yeah. And her reality was, you know, everything's been taken away. She just didn't life. feel, and she knew that the reality was that that wasn't gonna change. Well, even if, even if she, yeah, if she could get out of pain, she, she would have gone on the next day to live a full life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she had so many other things taken away from her. Her life became so diminished yeah. in her eyes. So I think we all admire her for yeah. taking control. Totally. Of course. Um, yeah. But, you know, you are left with everybody experiences this differently and everybody has different ways they deal with grief and deal with not being able to say goodbye to a parent or a loved one. And um, I remember the things that I felt after, not anger, not like, oh, why didn't she? Well, I, I did, I remember talking to your cousin's friend who was raised in India Damien and we had this whole conversation about Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy and I remember saying to him, oh, I never had an opportunity, I feel so bad, I never got to say goodbye to grandma and tell her mm -hmm. how much I loved her. Mm -hmm. and he looked at me and he says, that's such a Western thing. <laughs> you know, every day you hung up the phone with her, saw her and said, mm -hmm. I love you. You're like, you say goodbye all the time. Yeah. There's no... But he's right. You did and, say that yeah, those things she, every day. Yeah, she knew you loved her. You don't, you don't have to, you know, everyone has this kind of romantic vision of yeah. saying goodbye to a loved one. And when that, and my girlfriend had that with her mother in the hospital, and it was a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. 
but that was what she had. I didn't have that. And I feel like I did have that with grandma. He kind of made me think of it differently. And um, the other the other thing I felt so sad about was like, oh my God, you know, I, I didn't think about it as much when grandma was alive, but after she passed away, I was like, oh my God, she suffered so much. It's so sad. Because I think when you're, when she was alive and I was dealing with all of her issues and problems, you know, there's a part of your brain that just blocks out the really painful piece that, you know, my mom is suffering, at least for me. Mm. I had to block that out in order to be there for her. And so then after she died, the reality of, oh my God, she suffered so much. It like so became sad. reality. It became a reality for right. me. And, and, and Damien said, but she had like incredible highs and lows. And so many people don't ever have yeah. those highs and lows. And she did. She had these amazing highs. She had the most incredible life, beautiful everything she was surrounded by beautiful family beautiful art beautiful mm -hmm. home beautiful mm -hmm. everything clothes you know and she had great experiences and trips and all of these incredible things and she was like a her energy was living every moment to the fullest yeah she just right she was like a super positive happy full of life woman and then she had her lows but I guess that was her life mm -hmm. and so I accepted that mm -hmm. Damien explained it I think he explained it really well yeah and the last thing he explained which was helpful I said to him I wish she had said something to me mm -hmm. like she was going or I should have asked her if she was suicidal like I should have said mom you're in such a bad way you know, I'm afraid you're going to take your life. I'm right. afraid of this. Right. Talk to me about it. And I didn't say that. And she didn't say anything. And he said to me, you know, when in the old, in the golden ages or whenever, um, a warrior who was like battling war his whole life, at the end of his life, he would go up to the mountaintop and he would take his life. And if he went to tell his family he was doing this, right. you know, they would all claw at him and grab him and take him down and say, no, what are you doing? You're not doing that. You're not leaving us. So he would do this alone. And that's what your mom did. Mm -hmm. She wanted to spare you all. Yeah. What was she going to do? She was going to tell you. And I don't even think that she knew she was going to do it. Yeah, I, 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 I think her, her psychologist, George, said something that this was an impulsive decision. And what's funny is that grandma was an impulsive person. Um, and I still don't know exactly what to make of that, whether it was an impulsive decision. I think some of it was, but some of it was, she knew what she was doing too. Mm -hmm. Is there any advice that you have for people who, family members who are going through this or who have, you know, whether it's suicide or chronic illness I don't know I mean you've given a lot of insight but is there anything else that you want to share um, well it's really hard to watch somebody suffer in your family mm -hmm. whether it's your husband or your child or your parent um, I 
watched her on and off suffer with pain from the time I was 18 to 50. And um, what it gave me was like I had just this great fullness for my own health yeah. that I never took for granted, which I, which was not something that my peers had. Mm -hmm. I just was so grateful for my own health. And um, I think that the best thing you could do to be a support system to somebody who you love who is suffering in any way is really just to listen. I mean, grandma did call all of us almost every day and she would go on for like an hour. And so, you know, I would listen and a lot of it was like trying to navigate her week because if she put too many things on her schedule, I would like kind of help her figure it all out. Like, mom, that's too much, do this, do that. And she'd be like, oh, that's so helpful. Okay, I'm gonna cancel that appointment. I don't need that on my schedule, you know? And so it was just listening, talking through issues. And then when I'd get off the phone, I just would turn it off. Mm -hmm. But you were really good at doing that. I was able to do it. But then after she died, I felt badly. You know? well, oh, right? I yeah. felt badly, I turned it off. But then someone said to me, but you turning it off, you were able to, you know, yeah. you were able to then go the next morning and listen to her again. And because and, it's so... Well, it's it, true. It, if you couldn't turn it off, then you wouldn't have been able to pick up the phone the next day because you would have been too upset to deal with it again. Right. So, you know, you have everybody has a different personality. And I think that if it's hard to hear a parent have, you know, complain or talk about their pain, then you need to just sometimes they say distracting the person onto another subject is the best thing to do you know i listened to her and i talked about it that's the type of personality she had but i, I have friends who have parents who don't want to talk about their medical problems. which is probably more common right so it all depends but i think you know the only other helpful thing that you can do if someone you love is having issues is to just get engaged in learning about what they're going through yeah because i think then they feel um listened to and validated and that they're not alone because i think that when you're in pain and when you have medical problems you often feel really alone um and yeah i have this line people who suffer with poorly understood chronic pain or other obscure medical conditions must often bear the added burdens of stigma invalidation and abandonment mm -hmm. and that to me really um resonates with how grandma must have felt you know she did feel stigmatized she did feel invalidated she did feel abandoned yeah often but you know she had a doctor who listened and she had many doctors who became her closest allies and friends and family members who listened and friends who listened then that went that just goes a long way yeah thanks for doing this mom oh you're welcome are you and happy I, yeah i'm happy and i um i think um i feel grandma's presence today um she's i don't believe in it the spiritual mm -hmm. like things very much but in terms of like she's looking down on us but I do feel her presence in some way and um, I think she had a really beautiful wonderful life that she wouldn't have um, done any differently 
she was um, a real activist and really proud of having come from being an only child to having this huge family. And um, I know that her legacy will go forward mm. um, with all her grandkids. Um, I think we all kind of live and breathe all our, our what we call mo monaisms, mm -hmm. and um, you know we carry her with us. So happy birthday, mom! Thanks, Hannah, mm -hmm. for doing all the great work you do, and um, thanks for helping me. Thanks for listening, everyone.